When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. We were visited by a violent shock of an earthquake, accompanied by a very awful noise resembling loud but distant thunder, but more hoarse and vibrating, which was followed in a few minutes by the complete saturation of the atmosphere, with sulfurous vapor causing total darkness, the screams of the affrighted inhabitants running to and fro, not knowing where to go or what to do, the cries of the fowls and beasts of every species, the cracking of trees falling, and the roaring of the Mississippi, the current of which was retrograde for a few minutes, owing, as is supposed, to an interruption in its bed, formed a scene truly horrible. The inhabitants fled in every direction to the country, supposing if it can be admitted that their minds were exercised at all, that there was less danger at a distance from than near to the river. Eliza Bryan, 22nd of March, 1816. Above the dirty, ill-lit streets, above the black roofs, stretched a dark, starry sky. Only looking up at the sky did Pierre cease to feel how sordid and humiliating were all mundane things compared with the heights to which his soul had just been raised. At the entrance to the Adabat Square, an immense expanse of dark starry sky presented itself to his eyes. Almost in the center of it, above the Brechistinka Boulevard, surrounded and sprinkled on all sides by stars, but distinguished from them all by its nearness to the earth, its white light and its long, uplifted tail shone the enormous and brilliant comet of the year 1812. The comet which was said to portend all kinds of woes and the end of the world. In Pierre, however, that comet with its long, luminous tail aroused no feeling of fear. On the contrary, he gazed joyfully, his eyes moist with tears, at this bright comet which, having traveled in its orbit with inconceivable velocity through immeasurable space, seemed suddenly like an arrow piercing the earth, to remain fixed in a chosen spot, vigorously holding its tail erect, shining, and displaying its white light amid countless other scintillating stars. It seemed to Pierre that this comet fully responded to what was passing in his own softened and uplifted soul, now blossoming into a new life. Lief Tolstoy, War and Peace. The end of 1811 and beginning of 1812 was a shaky time, both metaphorically and in some instances physically, and the shifts and upheavals of the time would have long-lasting impacts. Before we start sorting through all of that, though, I'd like to take the opportunity to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Alicia and Roberto for providing the intro quotes for this episode. Alicia is the host of Civics and Coffee, a weekly podcast where she explores various topics in American history, including, but not limited to, presidential history. In addition to working her way through U.S. history in a rough chronological order, she sometimes does special episodes with topics ranging from Henrietta Wood to the U.S. Post Office to John Carpenter's Halloween. She also occasionally interviews historians and other podcasters, including, but not limited to, yours truly. If you haven't checked out Civics and Coffee yet, you can go to the website, which is Civics and Coffee, all spelled out, all one word, dot com. Or you can search for Civics and Coffee anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Likewise, Roberto is also a fellow podcaster who is the host and co-host, respectively, of two podcasts, The History of Sacavello, Georgia, and Czar Power. The first podcast explores the history and culture of the nation of Georgia in the Caucasus Mountains at the intersection of Eastern Europe and Western Asia. 
Speaking as someone with little knowledge of that part of the world prior to listening to his podcast, Roberto does a wonderful job of sharing with his audience the various fascinating historical figures and cultural components that led up to the present day. You can find more on this podcast at History of Sacavelo. That's S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O dot com. On Sour Power, Roberto is joined by his co-host Brendan, and the two explore the history of the rulers of Russia from Rurik to Putin. From the Varangian rulers of Kiev to the Russian Federation, this journey through Russian history is one not to be missed. You can find more information on this podcast at Tsar, that's T-S-A-R, powerpod.weebly.com. For all three of these podcasts, I'll be sharing information on my social media around the release of this episode. So if you don't follow me already, I can be found on Facebook, Mastodon, and Post as Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcasts, all one word. Alicia and Roberto are both not just amazing podcasters passionate about their subjects, but they're also great friends and prime examples of why the history podcasting community is such a wonderful, supportive place for new podcasters, as well as folks who may be a few years in. I do hope you'll check out all three of these podcasts once we're done. But for now, let's get back to where we left off. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. As we've seen throughout our narrative, Though the United States had won its independence from Great Britain decades back, even at the time of the Madison presidency, there was still concern that American independence may be a short-lived notion and that a European power, be it Britain or France, might take part of the United States back or exert undue influence to make the United States independent in name only. It was in this latter vein that Senator Philip Reed, Democratic-Republican from Maryland, had introduced a proposed amendment to revoke the citizenship of any U.S. citizen who, quote, accepted, claimed, received, or retained any title of nobility or honor, or shall, without the consent of Congress, accept any present, pension, office, or emolument of any kind whatever from any emperor, king, prince, or foreign power. After the Senate, by a 19-5 vote, approved it, On May 1st, 1810, it was likewise overwhelmingly approved by the House by a vote of 87 to 3, and the proposed amendment went to the states for ratification. Though 12 states ultimately approved the amendment by December 1812, this was not enough to pass the amendment, and it remains to this date one of the unratified amendments still floating out there, though it was accidentally printed in the 1815 edition of United States Statutes at Large, despite not being ratified by three-fourths of the states at the time. Now, there's no conclusive evidence of a direct correlation that I've been able to find, so grains of salt at the ready, dear listener. But just as the amendment was originally proposed during a time of anxiety about foreign influence in governments, as time went on and the state governments took it up for consideration, enough had happened both within the U.S. and outside of its borders, to make them feel a bit more secure that American independence was not a passing fad. It certainly helped that the March Revolution seemed to be picking up steam in other parts of the Western Hemisphere. We discussed some of the moves for independence from Spain, either limited or full, that had occurred in the first couple of years of the Madison presidency in episode 4.13. But for now, I'd like to point out a couple on the north coast of South America that would have a significant impact on the U.S. The first was in the, quote, formidable coastal fortress city of Cartagena. In May 1810, that city declared its independence from Spain, and the movement spread through what is now known as Colombia, until, in July, a junta overthrew the governor of Bogota, quote, and declared Cartagena an open port. With this declaration... Cartagena quickly became a center of privateering activity in the Caribbean. In order to avoid being charged with piracy, 
Ships that wanted to sail the seas and capture the vessels of other nations had to have what was called a letter of mark, which was issued by a government authorizing them to attack foreign vessels that the nation was at odds with. As the Provincias Unidas de la Nueva Granada, or the United Provinces of New Granada, of which Cartagena was a part, was fighting for its independence from Spain, and the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico was abound with Spanish ships, privateers flocked to Cartagena for letters of mark to be able to engage in sanctioned piracy in the area. Though the official American position was that of neutrality toward Spain, numerous American corsairs engaged in the privateering business, and there were ties with the Lafitte black market operation being run out of Barataria in the Orleans Territory. The nascent independence movement of New Granada would be replicated over 600 miles to the east of Cartagena. When our old friend Francisco de Miranda and one of his new allies, Simon Bolivar, returned to Venezuela from Europe in late 1810, as discussed in episode 4.13, as noted by historian Marie Arana, they found that, quote, the Caracas Junta had cemented its ties to captured Spanish King Ferdinand VII, weakened its influence in the provinces, and splintered into a score of bickering factions. The Junta had set out to mimic the government of the United States of America, although that example, born of a rare ethnic and ideological solidarity, was singularly unsuitable for a populace that had no uniformity of race, class, or experience, and so couldn't agree on much of anything. Again, from Arana, quote, It was soon clear to Miranda that Bolivar had overestimated the enthusiasm with which his countrymen would receive him. For all of Bolivar's fine words, Venezuela was unprepared for drastic change. He would have to grasp the reins they would not be handed to him. The Caracas Junta underestimated Miranda as he positioned himself step by step to take charge. By June 1811, Miranda's faction was ready to make its move. Conveniently, a scandal came to light that provided them with their opening. It was discovered that a newly appointed member of the Congress, quote, was actually an agent for the Spanish Regency and had absconded with the War Department's plans. Questioning why Venezuela should continue to support a government that sent spies against them, on July 1st, the first official call for full independence came. On July 5th, the Congress voted, and with only one vote against, Venezuela, quote, declared absolute independence, and the first republic was born. Miranda triumphantly unfurled his tricolor banner, yellow, red, and blue, and Caracas went wild with jubilation. Late into the night, revelers delivered ecstatic speeches on the plaza, ripped Spanish flags to shreds, broke into private homes to destroy portraits of the king, and the royalists cringed, fearing the wrath of Cadiz and the vengeance of heaven. Meanwhile, across the Caribbean from South America, Haiti was continuing to work towards establishing a lasting governmental structure despite the North and the South being two separate nations. As we last discussed way back in episode 3.31, after the untimely assassination in 1806 of Jean-Jacques Dessalines, or Emperor Jacques I, as he came to be called after the establishment of the Empire of Haiti, the nation split with Henri Christophe taking control in the north, while Alexandre Pétion held the south. In February 1807, Christophe had, quote, summoned his own assembly in the north province and had himself elected president of the state of Haiti. But this assembly, in passing a constitution, quote, drawn up by Christophe, appointed him generalissimo of the land and sea forces for life. In response to this, the southern portion became the Republic of Haiti, with Pétion being elected as its president for a four-year term in March 1807. These two nations would soon become pawns in the contest between Britain and France, and both would attempt to get in good favor with the British. Christophe wanted the British Navy to support him in a blockade of the ports of the Southern Republic, and, after the British outlawed the slave trade, offered, quote, to buy any slaves that the British government captured from slave ships, quote, and make them free citizens of Haiti. Pétion, in his own bid for British support, offered to submit to British sovereignty over Haiti in October 1810. While the British kept playing the two sides against one another to their advantage, they had little motivation to get directly involved, 
while they were still heavily engaged in conflict with France. It was difficult enough to administer the colonies abroad that they already had, so they had no desire to take over Haiti. Meanwhile, aiding the blockade of the South would disrupt British trade there, so they tried to discourage Christophe's blockade. Christophe, however, realized that the present situation was untenable, and thus, on December 30th, 1810, he issued a proclamation to, quote, declare in a state of blockade all those ports which are now in the possession of the rebels and which are now blockaded by my squadrons and against which I am directing my land forces. The South had no intention of giving up its independence and in 1811 re-elected Pétion to another four-year term as president. In response, on March 28, 1811, Henri Christophe, quote, declared Haiti a kingdom with himself as King Henri Premier. As noted by Christophe's biographer Hubert Cole, quote, he had many reasons for making Haiti a kingdom and himself a king. Vanity was not the least of them, but neither was it the greatest. A king was still a creature of power and splendor, not yet an antique oddity. The title would give him an advantage over Pétion in the eyes of both their peoples, brought up to honor kings. He would expect it to raise Haiti in the estimation of the white world, where Bonaparte was still setting up kingdoms for his relations. As king of the blacks, he would have a greater chance to lead his people to equality with the whites. We shall have to see over time how these various independence movements and governmental structures work out, but in the meantime, let's briefly turn to a revolution movement that was occurring around the same time in the British Isles. Last episode, we discussed the issues that the government of British Prime Minister Spencer Percival was facing in terms of negotiating the regency of the Prince of Wales, George, while his father, the King, was incapacitated. Shortly after that issue was resolved in early 1811, a group of knitting workers in the county of Nottinghamshire protested, quote, the growing mechanization of their industry by smashing up some of the new machinery at the factory. As the protests expanded across the Midlands, which is the central part of England, as well as parts of North England and Wales, rumors start to fly that these workers who would, under the cloak of night, smash up mechanized equipment were, quote, under the command of Captain Ludd or Captain Edward Ludd. Hence how this movement came to be known as the Luddite Rebellion. Though Captain Ludd would ultimately prove to be a fictional character, this reflects what historian Andrew Linkletter describes as a fear of some in England. Quote, The Napoleonic Wars had introduced large numbers of men to weapons and disciplined organization, and what especially frightened local informants was the potential alliance between military experience and social insurrection. Not only were the Luddites a menace to industry, some even went so far as to call for the execution of Prime Minister Percival himself. Given this domestic instability amidst the continued state of war with France, one can add to the list of reasons given last episode for sending the new British minister to the U.S., Augustus Foster, to try to keep a lid on the American situation for the time being until they had some bandwidth to think about it. For those of you who have read ahead, you know that the Luddites will be around in Britain for a while longer, so we'll leave them there and return back to the United States where the Madison administration was facing its own challenges and upheavals. First, let's start with someone who has been a rather prominent player in all four of the presidencies we've discussed to date, but that we last heard from way back in episode 4.8. That's right, friends. It's time to catch up with what's going on in the long and winding tale of General James Wilkinson. If you'll remember from episode 4.8, Wilkinson had been suspended as commanding officer of the U.S. Army in December 1809 for his leadership in the notorious Terrebonne fiasco, where the troops under his command were decimated by disease due to Wilkinson's poor choice of a camp for the force, a choice that was in direct opposition to orders from the War Department. President Madison and Secretary of War William Eustis had been in agreement to make his suspension, quote, pending the outcome of a congressional investigation, as they knew that, then as now, congressional investigations take time. They hoped that by holding off on calling for a court-martial of Wilkinson, that the now 52-year-old general might just get the hint and tender his resignation rather than go through the rigmarole of investigation and proceedings. 
As many had done over the years, however, Madison and Eustace underestimated Wilkinson's stubbornness. Wilkinson would not go quietly. 1810 saw Wilkinson, who had been widowed a few years prior, marry the new object of his affections, Celestine Trudeau, in New Orleans in March. Nine months after their brief honeymoon, his new wife bore him a daughter, though Wilkinson would not be there for the child's birth. When I say their honeymoon was short, I mean Wilkinson was on his way to Washington less than a week after their marriage, and he would be away from Celestine for over two years. Wilkinson's reputation by this point was under heavy attack, not only from two congressional investigations, one into, quote, his role as a Spanish agent, and the other on, quote, his responsibility for the Army's loss of life at Terrebuff, but also by the release of a publication which called Wilkinson out. Daniel Clark had worked with Thomas Power to uncover any proof they could, and in 1809, Clark published his, quote, Proofs of the Corruption of General Wilkinson and his connection with Aaron Burr. After so many years largely spent in the West, Wilkinson had to return East to defend himself. Though he could address Clark's work with his own memoirs, entitled, quote, Burr's Conspiracy Exposed and General Wilkinson Vindicated Against the Slanders of His Enemies, Wilkinson found himself shut out from delivering remarks in his defense in the congressional investigations, both of which would report out in February 1811. The Spanish agent one ultimately fizzled out and made no recommendation, though, as we now know, Wilkinson was in fact a paid agent of the Spanish government, even while serving as commanding general of the U.S. Army. With the other investigation, the committee largely agreed, quote, that Wilkinson alone was to blame. But one member of the group raised his objections and voted against recommending action against Wilkinson. With this objection, Congress decided that no further action was needed. With these investigations done, Wilkinson got his friends and supporters to lobby the Madison administration to call for a court-martial for the general in order to clear his official record. Finally, Wilkinson secured a meeting with Secretary of War Eustace on May 14, 1811. Eustace agreed to call for a court-martial, but when he recommended that it should take place in New Orleans, Wilkinson pushed back and said that he felt it should happen closer to the seat of government so that the administration could monitor its progress and promptly receive the results. Madison and Eustace ultimately agreed, and on June 1, 1811, an order was issued for Wilkinson, quote, to stand trial at a court-martial accused of aiding the Burr conspiracy, accepting a pension from the Spanish government, and being responsible for the disaster at Terrebuff. On September 4, 1811, as described by Wilkinson biographer Andrew Linkletter, quote, General James Wilkinson arrived in the courtroom in Frederickstown, Maryland, dressed in the gaudy gold-brazed uniform he had devised for himself, with his sword strapped to his waist. By this point, the administration had drafted, quote, an astonishing list of eight different charges, subdivided into 25 specific offenses. Chronologically, they covered events from 1787 through 1809, and in seriousness, from the waste of public money to disobedience of orders, which was punishable by death. During the court-martial, Wilkinson responded in depth to one charge after another, and naturally, he had an answer for everything. As Daniel Clark was not present at the court-martial, he, quote, was in his absence discredited as a vindictive liar. In fact, anyone who had attacked Wilkinson over the years came in for criticism. His disobedience of Eustace's orders as to where to locate the army camp was chalked up to the fact that Wilkinson was supposedly still following orders from Eustace's predecessor at the War Department, Henry Dearborn. One by one, Wilkinson dismantled the case against him, and on Christmas Day, 1811, the jury returned its verdict. Wilkinson's fate, however, was not sealed until President Madison had the opportunity to review the verdict, and thus, the nearly, quote, 700 pages of transcripts and conclusions were sent to President Madison, who spent almost six weeks plowing through what must have been uncomfortable reading, as described by Linkletter. Quote, The government was savagely criticized, and on every count, the general was found not guilty, 
and the court concluded, from a comparison of all the testimony, General Wilkinson appears to have performed his various and complicated duties with zeal and fidelity and merits the approbation of his country. That's right, dear listener. Wilkinson had gotten away with it once again. Thus, on February 14, 1812, President Madison was reluctantly forced to restore Wilkinson to his military command. As you can imagine, we are not done yet with the tale of James Wilkinson. But for now, we have to focus in on some changes that happened in the nation's capital in late 1811 that would have major impacts on the political landscape moving forward. These shifts started with the growing ambitions of the gentleman from Kentucky named Henry Clay. As we discussed in episode 4.15, Clay, during his brief tenure in the U.S. Senate, had already become a prominent figure in Washington circles. But as the Senate term that he had been chosen to fill the remainder of was about to come to an end, Clay in 1810 had to consider where his political future lay. Clay consulted with Attorney General Caesar Rodney, as well as Representative William A. Burrell, Democratic Republican from Virginia, and both recommended that Clay not seek election to a full term in the Senate, but rather stand for election to the U.S. House of Representatives. As described by Clay Bog for Robert Remini, quote, he, Clay, enjoyed the national scene in Washington very much and believed he could play an important role in Congress, but he had to admit his preference for the excitement and turbulence of the lower house over the quiet dignity of the upper. He preferred action over discourse, movement over contemplation, ardor and impulsiveness over caution and circumspection. Thus, during the congressional recess that year, Clay returned to Kentucky and threw his hat into the ring. Again from Remini, quote, Immediately, other prospective candidates withdrew. They would not waste their time on a hopeless cause. Thus, Clay was elected unopposed to a seat in the House. The election cycle that Clay was a part of was one that brought a new batch of congressmen to the nation's capital. As Remini notes, the 12th United States Congress brought, quote, a number of new faces in the House, all relatively young, late 20s and early 30s, all born after the Declaration of Independence had been signed, and virtually all fire-breathing war hawks. Many of them came from the South and West and had their glinty eyes fixed on either Florida or Canada. As we've seen in episodes in the Jefferson and Madison series, the animosity towards the British had been growing since the Chesapeake Leopard Affair of 1807, and the voting public in certain key districts in the nation responded by electing folks who saw war as the only recourse against Britain if the British did not repeal their orders in council. Clay had proven himself rather bellicose during his tenure in the Senate, asserting in one speech that, quote, I'm not, sir, in favor of cherishing the passion of conquest, but I must be permitted to conclude by declaring my hope to see, ere long, the new United States if you will allow me the expression, embracing not only the old 13 states, but the entire country east of the Mississippi, including East Florida and some of the territories to the north of us also. His new house seat would allow him to be on the forefront of the seemingly populist nationalist movement. Just being elected to the house was not enough for Clay, however. When it came time for him to assume his seat in late 1811, Clay made the journey to Washington early, starting out in mid-October. As described by Remini, amongst this new crop of House members, quote, although few of these men had ever personally known the political oppression of British rule, they had nonetheless developed a powerful enmity towards Great Britain. In addition, they felt a deep need to express their enmity and translate it into action. They therefore looked for leadership from those like themselves, who understood the necessity of strong measures to assert the rights of the nation, including a declaration of war, if nothing else sufficed to bring redress. But they wanted men with legislative and debating experience in order to check the opposition of an older generation of statesmen who counseled caution and prudence and delay. They wanted men skillful in parliamentary maneuvering and the art of political manipulation. 
Does anyone come to mind with this description, dear listener? One lesson to know about Henry Clay at this point in his career. He was a man who could read a room. Clay knew that his previous experience in Washington gave him an advantage over anyone else in turning this political movement to his benefit. Having arrived in the Capitol early, Clay was able to use the advantage of the close quarters of the boarding house system that still existed, much as it had from the time the Capitol had moved to the Potomac 11 years prior, to get to know some of the incoming House members and win them over to his side. Meanwhile, he was able to gauge the political landscape so that, by the time the Democratic-Republicans caucused the night prior to the convening of the first session of the 12th Congress, there was a firm strategy in place to push Henry Clay into the chair of the Speaker of the House. While initial moves were taken by the old Republicans, led by our old friend, Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, to reinstate Representative Nathaniel Macon, Democratic-Republican from North Carolina, as Speaker, the Warhawks, as the pro-Clay faction came to be dubbed, made their move. Rather than being a strength, Macon's connection to Randolph, who he had chosen during his previous tenure as Speaker to serve as Chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, proved to be a liability, and the Warhawks convinced enough members that a return of Randolph as Chairman of that increasingly important committee would be a dangerous prospect. That done, they were then able to turn them to support Clay for Speaker. Thus, on November 4, 1811, the House convened, and Clay was elected as Speaker of the House by 75 votes. Macon only secured three votes. To date, this is the only time in history that a freshman member of the House was elected as Speaker of the House on their first day of service. As you can imagine, we'll be talking more about Clay's tenure as Speaker as, spoiler alert, he will reshape the position into one of more prominence than we've seen to date with nearly forgettable speakers. For now, though, we must shift our attention to some changes coming out of the President's House. We talked in episode 4.15 about how President Madison had secured John Quincy Adams' confirmation to the Supreme Court in February 1811 after trying unsuccessfully for months to get Levi Lincoln to accept the post. Given that Adams had complained in previous correspondence about the high cost of maintaining his diplomatic posting and that Adams' mother, the former First Lady Abigail Adams, had written to Madison urging him to find a posting for her son closer to home, Madison had no doubt that John Quincy would jump at the chance to return to the States. The only problem for all of them is that JQA was in St. Petersburg, Russia, and thus it took months for the news to reach him and for his reply to head back across the Atlantic to the nation's capital. When John Quincy learned of this appointment in late May, he wrote back to Madison on June 3rd that, quote, there are contingencies which might enable me at a very late period of this season to embark. But I have little hope to reckon upon some of them, and still less inclination to anticipate the rest. My expectation is to be detained here the next winter by ties which the affections of a husband and a parent can neither dissolve nor sever. I cannot expect, nor however it might suit my convenience, can I permit myself to desire that you should keep an office of such importance vacant a full year longer to await my return. And this consideration is decisive to induce me to decline the appointment. If the timing argument wasn't enough, he had another consideration to include against the appointment. Quote, My education to the law was regular, and during several short periods in the course of my life, I've been in professional practice at the bar, but its studies were never among those most congenial to my temper, and the great proportion of my time has been employed in occupations so different from those of the judicial tribunals that I have long entertained a deep and serious distrust of my qualifications for a seat on the bench. In short, thanks, but no thanks. As John confessed to his brother Thomas, quote, I'm also, and always shall be, too much of a political partisan for a judge. 
It would be some time before Madison learned that Adams was declining the post, and in the meantime, another vacancy on the court had come up. Again, referring back to episode 4.15, it had been expected for some time that a new seat would open up, as Associate Justice Samuel Chase had been in ill health for a while. Chase, after over 15 years on the bench, finally passed away of, quote, ossification of the heart in Baltimore, Maryland, on June 19, 1811. Still assuming that the New England court seat previously held by William Cushing was to be filled by Adams, President Madison had to consider who in the Mid-Atlantic could now fill Chase's seat. As it turned out, he didn't have to look any further than the Treasury Department. Gabriel Duvall had been born in Prince George's County, near what became the District of Columbia in Maryland in December 1752. He started his career of public service in the militia and as a clerk for the Maryland Convention and Council of Safety at the beginning of the Revolutionary War, then clerked at the State Constitutional Convention and in the first session of the lower house of the State Assembly. After the war, Duvall was elected to the Maryland State Council, then to the State House of Delegates. Though elected to attend the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787, Duvall declined the offer. As factional politics developed after the ratification of the Constitution, Duvall drifted to the Democratic-Republican side and was elected in 1794 to the U.S. House of Representatives. He only served for two years before accepting a position as Chief Justice of the General Court of Maryland, ironically enough, replacing the very same Samuel Chase whose seat in the Supreme Court he would ultimately hold. He stayed in that post until he was invited to become Comptroller of the U.S. Treasury in December 1802. This made Duvall a key deputy to Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin. As noted by historian James O'Hara, quote, The Comptroller was highly regarded by Congress, and with Secretary Gallatin did battle with the Senate, a fairly regular occurrence, both sides tended to rely on Duvall for accurate, factual information. Duvall had remained at this post through the majority of Jefferson's tenure and, like Gallatin, continued on into the Madison administration. As the aim of President Madison, like his predecessor, was to shift the ideological leaning of the Supreme Court, who better could be trusted to do that than someone who had been a reliable ally for nearly a decade? Problem solved. And chill, of course. Madison learned that Adams had refused the seat offered him. It was back to the drawing board for a nominee from New England. Joseph Story of Massachusetts was nearly three decades younger than Duvall, having been born in September 1779 in Marblehead. Though Story had attended a local private school, he ultimately left the school after being quote-unquote severely disciplined and undertook independent study in order to secure admission to Harvard College in 1795. He graduated second in his class and went on to study law, though initially his passions ran more along the lines of poetry. Finally, though, he opened up a law practice, but he was far from a stunning success at the start. It didn't help that he was politically a Democratic-Republican and religiously a Unitarian. As noted by historian David T. Pride, at one point, quote, Story was assaulted and beaten. Finally, though, he started to build up a solid practice, and in 1805, he won elections to the State House of Representatives. As you may recall from episode 4.10, Story was the lawyer chosen to replace John Quincy Adams in the Fletcher v. Peck case when it came before the Supreme Court. So his legal reputation was on the rise at the end of the Jefferson presidency and the beginning of Madison's first term. His political reputation, however, suffered. In 1808, he had been elected to fill the remaining term of Jacob Crowninshield and the U.S. House of Representatives upon Crowninshield's death, and during this brief tenure, he had cast a vote against Jefferson's embargo. The outgoing president would not forget this slight, as Story returned to Massachusetts to serve once more in the lower house, winning election as Speaker of the State House in 1811. He was in this role when Madison decided that he wanted to nominate Story to the Supreme Court. This nomination would be one of the few times where Madison and Jefferson did not see eye to eye as Jefferson warned his successor as president that Story was a quote-unquote pseudo-Republican. However, we should note that Jefferson was not the only person to object to Story's nomination. 
Other Democratic-Republican leaders raised the same concerns. But to be fair to Madison, and as we discussed previously, there weren't many Democratic-Republicans from whom to choose in New England. He'd already tried nominating three more without success. At this point, he had to go with who he could get. Thus, on November 15, 1811, Madison submitted the names of Gabriel Duvall and Joseph Story to the Senate for confirmation as Associate Justices of the Supreme Court, and three days later, both were confirmed. For two people nominated and confirmed at the same time, their legacies on the court could not be any more different. While Story is described as, quote, one of the most influential legal scholars in history, Richard Ellis wrote of Duvall that he, quote, is one of the least important justices ever to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. Both would serve long tenures on the court, and both would ultimately, by and large, support positions advocated by the Federalist Chief Justice John Marshall. Neither would live up to Madison's ambitions of shifting the court's ideological stance, and, spoiler alert, this would be Madison's last opportunity to reshape the court. That's right, dear listener, despite Madison serving for two terms, these are the last nominations that Madison would make to the Supreme Court while president. To be fair, it's a greater impact than Monroe would prove to have, as he would only have one nomination to the court. But still, in the short term, Madison's decisions with regards to the Supreme Court nominations had a possibly unintended consequence. We haven't talked much about Attorney General Caesar A. Rodney in the narrative series to date. As noted by historians Tom Armstrong and Robert Rutland, Rodney spent most of his time back home in Wilmington, Delaware, tending to his private legal practice, as was customary for attorneys general in the early Republic. Because of this, Rodney wasn't as close to President Madison as he had been to Jefferson, who had been the one to initially bring him into the cabinet in 1807. Over the years, though, they had managed to have a cordial enough relationship, and Rodney has still provided his insight and perspectives on matters even beyond legal advice. However, it seems that Rodney had ambitions beyond the post of Attorney General. He was angling for a seat on the Supreme Court. Given that he was the administration's top lawyer and had an established legal reputation, it's not completely out of left field that Rodney should be considered for the post, especially for the position vacated by the death of Samuel Chase. Rodney was from Delaware and thus met the geographic criteria. He had been a loyal and trusted Democratic-Republican over the years. Why wouldn't he be the top choice? Imagine his surprise then when a Treasury Department official was chosen over him for the nomination. Thankfully for us, Rodney left evidence of his discontent in a draft resignation letter. He wrote in this draft that, quote, the elevation of a subordinate officer of the Treasury Department to a seat on the bench of the Supreme Court is an act of such decided character that neither the object nor the motive can be mistaken. He then went on to state that, while he considered Jefferson's invitation to serve as his attorney general a, quote unquote, high honor to take up, at that point, he felt that under the circumstances, it was, quote, a much higher honor nail to lay down the post. After getting all of his discontent down on paper, Rodney had a rethink, and instead, on December 5th, 1811, sent Madison a one-sentence note. Quote, I do hereby resign the office of Attorney General of the United States. Rodney went on to have a lengthy career of public service after leaving the administration, as we'll discuss in further detail in his Seat at the Table episode, which should be coming out before long. But from what I found, this letter was the last that he ever sent to Madison, though he would exchange letters with Jefferson from time to time in subsequent years. Rodney felt burned by Madison and, from all evidence, held on to the grudge for the rest of his days. Now, I said that this was a possibly unintended consequence of the Duval nomination, Given what we've seen of Madison to date, it could be that he was ready to be rid of Rodney, yet another person inherited from Jefferson's tenure of office, and did what he knew would force Rodney's hand to resign. While I can't point to any primary source to back this up, we also know that Madison and his close associates did what they could 
to shape the future narrative, up to and including editing primary documents to make Madison come across in a better light. One of the reasons why I speculate that Madison may have intended for Rodney to resign are, at the very least, been aware that it was a possibility is that it didn't take him long to choose a successor. The day after Rodney sent in his resignation, Madison wrote to William Pinckney, who, as we noted last episode, had just arrived back in the U.S. a few months prior, having ended his tenure as U.S. Minister to Britain. Madison wrote, quote, I'm desirous of obtaining for our country the services promised it by the talents and dispositions which you would carry into the vacancy. Unwilling, however, to present your name to the Senate without your permission, I must ask the favor of you to intimate by the gentleman charged with this whether I may have the pleasure of taking that liberty. With a hope that it will be allowed me, I tender you assurances of great esteem and best regards. As was often the case at the time with diplomats who had been posted abroad, it seems that Pinckney was still working to get his affairs at home back in order after having been away for a few years. On December 8th, he wrote back to the president that, quote, My professional prospects here are as flattering as I could have hoped or desired, and they assure me that, if I'm spared for a few years, I may yet redeem the negligence of the past. But the Office of Attorney General will not much interfere with them, if indeed it will not rather make them better. At any rate, it will place me nearer to you, and, while it will prove that I am still honored with your confidence and friendship, will afford me an opportunity of giving my humble assistance to your endeavors for the public good. I am ready, therefore, as I mentioned to Mr. Forrest, to accept the appointment whenever it may be your pleasure to make it and to repair to Washington as soon as it shall be thought expedient. As Pinckney was based in Baltimore, it wasn't a far distance from the nation's capital, and he should be able to travel back and forth easily to attend to both his public and private business. As soon as Madison received Pinckney's reply on December 10th, he sent his name to the Senate, which promptly confirmed Pinckney as the 7th United States Attorney General. With that, let's leave the administration for the time being and turn our attention further west. We left Tecumseh last episode leaving Vincennes on August 5th, 1811, and headed south to engage with the native nations of the American Southwest, which is modern-day Mississippi, Alabama, and western Georgia. As noted by historian John Sugden, quote, The southern Indians may have shared many burdens with their northern fellows, but their prospects for armed resistance to the United States were distinctly dimmer. In the 16th century, the native peoples of the area had suffered near extinction in the wake of the Spanish conquest of the Gulf region. As described by historian Howard Ware, quote, The Mississippian people had been wiped almost clean from the land, swept away by Spanish arms, horses, dogs, famine, and the wave of diseases that followed in the DeSoto expedition's wake. By the early 19th century, quote, The five Indian nations of the Old Southwest were a sparsely populated island in the steadily rising sea of white settlement. The dominant force in the area was the Muskogee Confederation, better known to whites at the time as the Creek Nation. Though grouped together, as Ware explains, quote, the Muskogee were actually a confederation of tribes, some of whom spoke different languages and whose uneasy alliances were reminiscent of the inconstant alliances formed by the city-states of the Italian Renaissance. Ultimately, Tecumseh made his way towards the Muskogee lands after first making a brief stop to visit with the Chickasaw before proceeding to the Choctaw. Neither of these visits had seen much enthusiasm about rallying to the cause of Tecumseh's confederacy, but the Shawnee leader had reason to believe that the Muskogee would be a bit more receptive. As he made his way towards the town of Tuckabatchee on the Tallapoosa River, Tecumseh found his way paved by an extraordinary celestial event, the Great Comet of 1811. As described in our opening quote from War and Peace, this comet ignited the imaginations of many across the world. As described by Ware, quote, With the enormous ball of its brilliant head, framed by a thinner veil of light, and an estimated 110 million mile tail of light streaming behind it, the great comet enchanted and frightened the people 
of the Northern Hemisphere. For the greater part of human history, comets have been viewed not only with wonder, but with terror as well. Omens of the coming of a momentous, often terrible, event. Tecumseh, whose name meant shooting star, would use this comet to his advantage. Again from where, quote, The longer Tecumseh stayed among the creeks, the greater the comet grew. But when he finally left the nation some weeks later, its brilliance began steadily to decline, as if, like a fierce but tamed beast, it was somehow tethered to the arrival and departure of its master, thus reinforcing the association of the supernatural with the man. Sugden notes that Tecumseh, in his discussions with those gathered at Tuckabachi, interpreted it, quote, as an omen that boded ill to his enemies. Indeed, the timing of his arrival was quite momentous, as an intertribal convention had been called and was gathering there at the same time, something that we are asserts was likely intentional. Thus, in addition to the Muskogee, there were also Seminoles, quote, 19 Choctaws, 46 Cherokees, and a number of Chickasaw representatives. Tecumseh had to be a bit cautious in his proceedings at Tuckabachi, as an agent of the federal government, Benjamin Hawkins, was also present, as he had been the one to call the convention, quote, purportedly to discuss the U.S. request to expand the postal trail through the Creek Nation into an actual road. Now, when I say discuss the request, I mean that Hawkins was there to tell everyone that the road was being built, whether they liked it or not. As described by Weir, the road in question was one that had been used by Native peoples for trading for many years, but the U.S. government wanted to merge it with other trading paths, quote, to form a road running from the capital of Georgia at Milledgeville to New Orleans. For the Americans, this was key, quote, to facilitate communications with their military facilities in Louisiana and Mississippi in anticipation of a coming war with Great Britain. Given that the native peoples of the South were upset over the road construction being forced upon them, one would think that the crowd would be open to the idea of going to war against the Americans. However, when native peoples from the West who had traveled with Tecumseh brought out a war pipe to seal the alliance, the Southern native leaders refused to smoke it. Tecumseh then changed tactics and said that he only wished for the native nations of the South to join with him and his confederacy, but that he did not intend to go to war with the United States. Once Hawkins left the convention after having secured an agreement on the road, Tecumseh was able to speak more freely about his vision for the future, and he delivered two speeches to folks assembled at Tuckabachi, one to the general public and the other to the assembled leaders. Again from Weir, quote, Both of Tecumseh's talks shared two common threads. The Indian people should return to their old customs and way of life, and the Indian nations should unite to preserve their remaining lands from the Americans. Tecumseh would find key leaders opposed to his plans and asserting that war against the United States would only lead to the destruction of the native peoples. The opposition of one key leader, though, would prove to be too much for Tecumseh to overcome. The leader of Tuckabachi was a man named Tustanugi, who white Americans dubbed the Big Warrior. As described by Ware, quote, the Big Warrior's name had nothing to do with his prowess at war. He was a politician, not a fighter. His name came from his great size. He was said to be the largest man among his people and weighed around 300 pounds. Unfortunately, his great body was afflicted with a horrible skin condition that rendered him spotted like a leopard. Like some of his fellow leaders, Tustanugi felt that Tecumseh's plans would only result in disaster, and, at one point, he considered having Tecumseh assassinated, though his advisors ultimately convinced him that killing a guest would be detrimental to his reputation amongst the other native leaders. Being the politician that he was, Tustanugi would not take a stand publicly one way or another regarding Tecumseh's plans. But in his dissembling remarks, the Shawnee warrior could see the Muskogee's opposition and knew that he was fighting a losing battle. Again from Weir, quote, Either during Tecumseh's speech in the rotunda, or more likely sometime later in the big warrior's cabin, Tecumseh faced his spotted host and accused him of double dealing. You 
have a white heart, Tecumseh told the cowering giant. And for all your feigned friendship, you are an enemy of the Indian people. Tecumseh is said by most sources to have threatened the big warrior. You do not believe the great spirit has sent me. You shall believe it. I will leave directly and go straight to Detroit. When I get there, I will stamp my foot upon the ground and shake down every house in Takabachi. Tecumseh, after he left the convention, made one more stop to visit the Cherokee and attempt to persuade them to join his confederation before finally heading back north in December. We'll return to Tecumseh's efforts to build his confederacy again in a future episode, but for now, we must address this whole stamping his foot on the ground and shaking down every house thing, because, though there's no way he could have known it at the time, this threat would prove to be rather prescient. The town of New Madrid along the Mississippi River was founded in the same year that George Washington was inaugurated as the first president of the United States. At the time, it was in Spanish-held territory, hence the name, but as we discussed in the Jefferson series, New Madrid, along with the rest of the Louisiana Purchase, would become part of the U.S. in 1803. Funny enough, it was actually founded by an American named George Morgan as part of a plan to develop a new colony in Spanish Louisiana in order to make a profit on land speculation in the area. Morgan planned for his new town, quote, to extend four miles south along the riverbank and two miles west from it, having at its center a beautiful, deep lake of the purest spring water 100 yards wide and several leagues in length. However, after an initial boom at the end of the 18th century, New Madrid started to slip into a decline in importance, particularly after the territory was transferred to the U.S. Morgan had chosen poorly when selecting the site for the town, as, according to historian Jay Feldman, quote, the flatness of the prairie land on which New Madrid had been founded, lacking drainage, caused rainwater to collect in stagnant ponds. Meanwhile, the riverbank was constantly being eroded, quote, by melting ice and spring rains that made the Mississippi swell each year, and, again from Feldman, quote, whole blocks of New Madrid were washed downstream as the raging current cut and sliced its way along the bend in the river. Still, the frontier town managed to hold on to a population of around 400, made up of residents from British and French ancestry. That is, until the events which started in the early morning of December 16, 1811. The citizens of New Madrid were presumably in bed when, at a quarter past 2 a.m., quote, there was a sudden, loud rumbling, likened in many eyewitness accounts to distant thunder or the rolling of wagons across pavement. All at once, the earth began moving, and throughout New Madrid, sleepers were jolted from their slumber and sent flying from their beds while articles of furniture were propelled across rooms. The wooden houses shook and jumped as men, women, and children went shrieking into the streets in their nightclothes. Many of the terror-stricken inhabitants, having no idea what was happening, ran aimlessly about in confusion. As panicked as we of the 21st century are at earthquakes, you can only imagine what this experience was like for denizens of the early 19th century when there was no understanding of plate tectonics or monitoring systems to at least give some warning of impending trouble. As noted by Feldman, quote, the racket, the darkness, the convulsions of the ground, and the overall chaos, not to mention the strong smell of sulfur, which is traditionally associated with the devil, convinced many that the day of judgment was at hand. Tremors would continue throughout the morning, with the worst hitting at around 7.15 a.m. Entire towns would be wiped off of the map by this event, and the quake would be felt hundreds of miles away. Ironically, given his prediction, it seems that Tecumseh was near the area of the epicenter when it struck. While we don't know his exact location on that date, in late December, it is recorded that Tecumseh visited an Osage village in what is now central Missouri and delivered a speech in which he said, quote, Brothers, the great spirit is angry with our enemies. He speaks in thunder and the earth swallows up villages and drinks up the Mississippi. 
The great waters will cover their lowlands. Their corn cannot grow. And the great spirit will sweep those who escape to the hills from the earth with his terrible breath. There will be numerous aftershocks over the next few months with a few other severe quakes. The two massive quakes on December 16th are estimated to have been somewhere between 7.2 and 8.1 on the modern-day Richter scale in terms of magnitude, while another one on January 23rd is estimated to have been between 7.0 and 7.8. Then the last major one on February 7th was likely of a magnitude between 7.4 and 8.1. Aftershocks were recorded through April, and even President Madison wrote about them. In a letter to former President Jefferson on February 7, 1812, Madison wrote, quote, The reiteration of earthquakes continue to be reported from various quarters. They have slightly reached the state of New York and have been severely felt west and southwestwardly. There was one here this morning at five or six minutes after four o'clock. It was rather stronger than any preceding one and lasted several minutes with sinister the very slight repetitions throughout the succeeding hour. Given what was ahead for the United States, it does seem that the Great Comet and the New Madrid earthquakes portended a tumultuous time ahead for the nation. That, however, is a story for another day, as our time together is drawing to a close. Special thanks again to Alicia and Roberto for providing the intro quotes for this episode. Be sure to check out Civics and Coffee, The History of Sacavallo, Georgia, and Czar Power, wherever fine podcasts can be found. Thanks so much to Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. If you'd like to enlist Christian services for your podcast, check out his website, which is yourpodcastpal.com for more information. Special thanks to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this episode. More information about the Itinerant Band and everyone that I've mentioned can be found at my website, which is Presidency's Podcast, again, all one word, dot com. There, you can find sources used for this episode, past episodes, links to more information about all of the presidents, and info on how you can leave a rating and review. I recently received a five-star review from Tanner Johnson, 1991, entitled An Excellent History Podcast. The review reads as follows, quote, Jerry does a phenomenal job presenting a lot of information in a digestible format while also capturing the characters and personalities involved in the history of the American presidency. Definitely add this to your history podcast rotation. Thank you so much for the shout out and kind words, Tanner, and thanks so much to everyone who has left a rating and review for the podcast. It really helps to get the word out there so that we can have more folks join us on this journey through U.S. presidential history. And believe you me, there is so much more that is coming up very soon. Spoiler alert, we're only a couple of episodes away from the War of 1812, so be sure to come back for the next Madison presidency episode to see just how the U.S. ended up in war with Britain again at the end of Madison's first term. One more item to mention before I go. A longtime listener of the podcast and a great supporter and friend of so many in the history podcasting community, Andrew Schneider, has a work of his own coming up that I wanted to mention. A composer and musician, Andrew's work will be featured on an upcoming album titled Pinnacle Volume 3, Contemporary Chamber Works. The release date is March 10th, 2023, and I'll be sharing information on my social media around the release. For more information about Andrew's work, check out Andrew Schneider Music, that's all one word, dot com. I can't wait to hear the album for myself and will likely have it in regular rotation while scripting for future episodes. Thanks to Andrew and all the amazing supporters of Presidencies, and thank you so much for listening to this episode. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.